0: Hello, and welcome to today's episode of Weaver Beyond the Numbers. My name is Becky Reeder, and I am the co-leader of the alternative investment practice at Weaver. I'll be your host today as we dive into a topic that's been really top of mind for both employees and employers over the past couple of years. We're going to be talking about acquiring and developing human capital. So, I'm very excited to introduce our guest today, Paul Olschwanger. He's the founder and chief inspiration officer at Wendell Rhodes Consulting. Paul has over 35 years of experience in the asset management industry, raising capital, recruiting, and coaching. And during this journey, he found his calling in helping firms achieve balance and financial success by developing human potential differently. Today, he leads his own organization, Wendell Rhodes Consulting, helping individuals and small teams thrive far beyond their imagination. So, welcome, Paul.
1: Thank you, Becky. It's great to be here.
0: Glad to have you here. So, working in the alternative investments industry, I'm a big fan of the TV show Billions. I've seen basically every episode. And so, for our listeners out there, who are thinking the name of your consulting firm, Wendell Rhodes, sounds awfully familiar, they would be right. So give us some insight on the inspiration for the name of your firm.
1: Yeah, happy to. For those who, who watch it, you'll be able to relate very well to the, the reason for coming up with this name. For those who haven't watched it, I'll, I'll give you a little better explanation. Essentially, six years ago, I watched the show Billions, the first episode uh, really caught my attention and it, it really hit to the essence of kind of my my puzzle my my career in terms of uh, helping other people figure things out to be their best uh, whether it's individually or how they impact others as a leader and uh, so I actually knew six years ago I was going to start my own consulting firm and I was going to name it after the fictional character Wendy Rhodes uh, there's two things one um, one, Wendy had a very close connection to the CEO, to the, the person whose name was on the door, uh, who really got what she did in terms of the value of really getting deep with each individual and helping them achieve, you know, the success that they were capable of. And then the other part was recognizing that value every moment uh, possible. Via compensation, equity ownership or telling other people the value. And that doesn't happen too often in our business that can be very quantitative. And so a lot of times when we talk about human capital and, and the needs to develop people, um, it's a hard thing to measure for a lot of people.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. I know a lot of my coworkers and I. We talk about the show and and Wendy Rhodes, and you know, it's just it's something that we all you know we all kind of joke with each other. Like you know, I'm I'm sort of your personal therapist, or I'm this or that. And it really, truly is, you know, something that that those intangible aspects that we often overlook. But it's something that people are often really wanting and looking for. So. Um, I think it's really, really great what you've started and a really interesting um, choice for the name of your firm. So.
1: Well, thank you. I appreciate that. The, the one analogy I use, and I'll use many others when I'm talking to people, is I'm a little bit like um, like an eye doctor. And that, you know, at some point in time, we might not have 2020 vision. And first of all, we have to recognize that. We have to care about it. We have to go do something about it. And so we go to an eye doctor, they test us, they give us glasses, contacts, they do surgery, and now our vision is better. Now we're seeing things we didn't see before. And that's the analogy that I use with people is, look, you're probably not seeing everything, but you've got to take that step to do something about it and let me be that person who can help you. And you know what? At the end of the day, you can get 100% of the credit for it. I'll be in the corner clapping for you. Mm,
0: I love that. I love that. Um, Well, let's dive in. Um, So, one of the things um, that's been top of mind for a lot of folks now is the Great Resignation, right? So, it's kind of yeah, (laughs) it's kind of become you know a a buzzword within our industry and just you know employment in general. So, um, you know, is is the Great Resignation over, or you know, is is this still ongoing? And how has this you know recent movement really shaped the employment landscape over the past couple of years?
1: Oh, becky you had to go there with that first question really uh i don't know the i think the magnitude of the great resignation has certainly papered off uh, in terms of the press it's like to the point where we we read less about the phenomenon but it's still a reality maybe not as obvious uh but i don't know based on last friday's better than an anticipated jobs report for july uh,
0: maybe maybe
1: uh <laughs> maybe these folks who resigned they went back to work but it's It's hard to tell if they're happier in their new role. Uh, I mean, if you believe in the theory that people first leave mentally and then physically, we might have many people who would like to resign but can't. So uh, I don't know. During the peak of the, the great resignation, I think people were rethinking their why, their purpose. And that's not necessarily a bad thing if they were able to figure this out and better align with their professional commitment. But They also see their investment portfolios uh, a lot lower, which may have them second guessing that decision to leave without another job lined up. So to answer your question, I think it's still out there. It's just different, feels different. And um, it's kind of hard to talk about the great resignation when our actual unemployment number has gone down a little bit.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I think there's definitely been a shift across the board. And I know a lot of folks shifted from, you know, with the pandemic, we all sort of had to go into this work from home model, and a lot of companies sort of adopted that permanently. Um, So I'm curious on your thoughts with that, you know, are people still um, happy with their work from home situations? Or are they kind of rethinking this, like, you know what, I would actually like to be in the office? Um, How is that impacting, you know, careers and, and company cultures, too?
1: Yeah, I think it's all over the place. It really depends who you're talking to and what company you were talking about and what their leadership is uh, is is saying. Because I've talked to some in our industry who've been working in the office since day one.
0: Mm-hmm. Like
1: they refused to, uh, you know, separate, wear a mask. Um, maybe they wore a mask in the office, but they were convinced and still are that you need to be together together to collaborate, to innovate, um, to do great things. The the other is um, the more remote people are, the harder it is to measure where those people are from from a lot of perspectives, mental health, um, engagement, motivation, performance. And um, so it's interesting. I think it's very much around uh, what company and what people we're talking about. Because some people I talk to they love working remote, and if you gave them that option, they would re- work remote 100% of the time, and they're convinced that their work is just as good, if not better, and that their balance, their work-life balance is better. On the other hand, there are some people who absolutely need to be around people and, and be around people on a consistent basis, and there are some experts out there who who are adamant that uh, the connection factor is is really reduced if you're working remote. So I, I think I think the key is is really is uh from a competitive standpoint is remaining open and flexible. But it's hard to say to you know one group of people you can do whatever you want, and then for the other is you gotta be here every day.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. So it's really kind of a, a strategy that each individual company really has to figure out what is gonna be best for their teams and and kind of, you know, their, their employees and kind of looking at that on a, you know, more granular level, essentially. So, um, so what do you think, I know um, we kind of talked about, you know, with, with the great resignation, people are kind of, you know, coming, they're, they're thinking about different things and finding different value in different places. So what are some of the things that employees are really looking for now in their new roles and new positions?
1: Yeah, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is just in general, employees want to be a part of an organizational culture that best aligns with their own values. And I don't think we talked like that as much before March of 2020. Um, I think they want certainly opportunities to grow, to be challenged, to be mentored, uh, to take on new responsibilities, and, of course, to be recognized, whether it's promotions or, uh, you know, financially, um, I think there's more of a, of a need to be a part of leadership that really, they believe, listen, and they give them a voice in the room, and, and they're, they're empathetic, and they're compassionate, and, um, and yet those leaders are willing to make difficult but fair decisions. And I, I stress fair, um, but fair can be a subjective thing, right? Um, so I think in many cases, Going back to what we just talked about, I do think they want the flexibility uh, to work remote, whether it's part or all the time, while still feeling connected. I I think those are all really important um, aspects today that maybe we didn't talk about as much two, two, two and a half years ago.
0: I agree. And I can really relate to that too. My schedule right now is kind of a hybrid. So I'll work from home a couple days a week and then I'll spend a couple days in Dallas in my Dallas office and then, you know, a day or two in Fort Worth in my Fort Worth office. And, you know, I really personally just feel like it's such a great, you know, blend of, you know, being able to still maintain that connection, but also, you know, don't have the commute two days a week, which is nice um and during the summer you know spending more time with my kids and family and that kind of thing so um you know i do think that that's certainly a positive that's that's come out of all of this
1: well i love hearing that uh, becky because that tells me too that your the focus there is more about your whole self and and also the performance is is really at the end of the day is you know if it's great and it's in line or exceeding expectations, how you get there um, could be different ways for different people. Yes. I think that's real critical right now.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Completely agree. Um, So let's kind of move into, you know, some of the organizational cultural aspects of this. So we've kind of talked about the employees. So I want to kind of, you know, get a take on this from the employer standpoint. Um, So one of the things, um, you know, I was kind of looking into this a little bit, and it it looks like right now millennials make up about 50% of the workforce, but um, by 2030, which is really just eight years from now, um, they're expecting that to be about 75% of the workforce. So um, and research, has kind of indicated that what separates, you know, the millennials from the past generations is their desire for purpose over stability, and you've talked about that um, a little bit, you know, just a few minutes ago. So, how does that sort of shift in mindset affect company culture and employee engagement?
1: Well, I, th- I think it's, uh, it's it's significant in terms of how, how companies led in the past versus what's needed today in the future, and I just think there's more dependency on who is leading and how they're leading and what their mindset is. I just think the shift over time can actually, it it can actually be a wonderful thing in terms of a willingness to take risk, to be more creative, innovative, collaborative. Um, However, all those things might actually mean more turnover if if I'm an employee and I don't feel that purpose um, within an organization. And I think that's been more prevalent over the last two years. So I think we're going from leadership saying, do your job, do it well, because I tell you so. And if, if you don't do it, you won't be here. Um, I think there's, there's really a demand for a softer approach. And again, to make sure that we understand not just what someone's skills are, but what, it, what is it that really gets them excited and, and make sure we understand that. And we need to individualize that, which takes more time and effort. Um, and so I, I, I think the bottom line here is there's just such an emphasis on uh, kind of a transition of more compassionate leadership. Yes. Um, you know, leadership that steps in a room and truly allows other people to have a voice. And um, that's just so important to people right now to feel that that connection, that belonging. We talk. I know you're probably going to ask me a question down the road about uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and, and maybe even the word belonging. But I think that's just so critical right now.
0: Yeah, I I think that's great. Um, so I know you know kind of historically, um, managers would be responsible for you know, kind of tailoring their management style to their employees. But now it's sort of pushed up even to the leadership level of let's tailor, you know, kind of our, our approach to, um, you know, what people are looking for essentially outside of just the work itself. Um, so I, I, I find that very interesting. Um, so asset management firms in general, let's talk about them a little bit. So what are you seeing um, in terms of your asset management clients? How has how has this sort of shift in the employment market impacted um, asset managers specifically?
1: Well, I just think the term work-life balance is just used more frequently. And, and um, in terms of its importance, I just think over the last two and a half years, we've we've all come to grips with the importance and what that means, whether it's, you know, mental health, uh, physical health. Um, you know, having loved ones or friends that are uh, dealing with, um, you know, any of those um, challenges. So to answer your question, I mean, I mean, absolutely. I mean, pe- people and their organizations can achieve, I think both balance and financial success. I absolutely believe that, but I just think we have to be very clear in understanding does the definition of balance mean for you versus your colleagues and, and try to come up with, you know, a number of ways to address what this balance means so that it may, we may come up with something that um, satisfies one individual and something else that satisfies another, but it's not going to be a one size fits all solution um, because of those differences. And I think all those things also, you know, they kind of build your company culture. And I know culture is something we talk a lot about and the importance and I think a lot of times uh, senior leaders talk about culture, but it's more aspirational than real because you go around and ask different people at the company to define their culture and you'll get different answers. Um, Again, some companies are telling their people, get back in the office full time or else while others are more flexible. Those ones that are less flexible, they're going to have a harder time recruiting people still, I think, and, and retaining people. And um, so I, I I think the culture starts at the top. It works its way down or it doesn't. But when I see, honestly, when I see companies on social media uh, proudly sharing team building initiatives or giving back to their communities, that tells me they're trying to create a culture of of some kind of balance and purpose and treating their people as individuals. And I would use the words with respect and a certain level of sensitivity that goes far beyond their job title and responsibility. Um, so I, I just think that who's leading is is important. But this work-life balance, uh, I, I we talk to our clients about that all the time. But helping them to define it and helping them to get deeper with their individuals so that they can find something that works for most people.
0: Yeah, and it sounds like you know traditionally you know the the high risk high reward model may be sort of evolving and where financial compensation was a huge part of that reward system, you know, perhaps people are looking at things a little more differently now. It's just, yes, you know, I'd I love to increase my compensation or have a nice bonus, but, you know, looking for more other than just, um, you know, the real cut and dry bonus financial compensation situation. So looking for more of those intangibles, I suppose, is what I'm trying to say.
1: Uh, absolutely. And I think the best thing that leaders can do, it doesn't matter how big or how small the the impact is, is to show that, hey, I, I listened to what you said in our meeting and I'm coming back to you. And not only am I repeating what I heard, but here's what I'm trying to do about it. Um, I, I think sometimes we think we're being heard, then nothing's ever done, and it's never mentioned again. And so we start to we start to have trust issues. We start to have confidence uh, issues. And so leaders, you know, they can just take that one step, just dip a toe in the water, as far as showing that they're listening, that care, and that they are trying to do something about it. Um, I think that goes a long way.
0: I do too, and I think um, one of those areas that you know we've we've often hear about in <clears throat> webinars and presentations and, you know, but actually moving beyond that, you know, and that would be diversity, equity, and inclusion. So we often- I knew hear, you are going to mention that. I, I sure did. <laughs> so we often hear, you know, the term, but what are, how can we move past the buzz, buzzwords and actually create some real change? You know, where where do companies start?
1: Becky, I wish I had a great answer for these questions. They're, they're great questions. They're relevant. They're fair. What I can tell you is I have the honor and responsibility of playing a leadership role in this topic, uh, not as a diverse person, but one who deeply cares and wants to be a part of the solution and not the problem. And I want to influence the old white male guard in a way that, um, tells them just because they don't look the part doesn't mean they can't play the part. So how do we go beyond talking and start doing more? Well, I think the, the CEO and the chief diversity officer, or whatever the title is, I think they should be tightly connected if they aren't already with a, a focus on fewer but impactful priorities. I mean, probably no more than five, maybe three that can be impacted, measured and communicated throughout the organization. So, for example, make the commitment to something like financial literacy. Develop your own curriculum or partner with, I mean, there's just so many great organizations, whether it's Rock the Street, Wall Street, Girls Who Invest. Uh, there's so many. Um, what happens, though, is I think we typically have plenty of volunteers on this subject, but we fail to put them to work and they don't feel a tangible impact. And if they don't get this within a certain window, we lose them. So we've got to be careful with spending time and money on programs such as, uh, I, I don't know, I'm going to pick on unconscious bias training because it's such an easy one, but it, you know what? If there's no consistent follow-up, those two hours of training to me is just, they're just simply a jolt of caffeine that wears off quickly. I think people tend to revert to who they are and guess what? Their biases don't just go away easily. So for me, my progress has been calling people out, which is uh, honestly has not been easy and it still isn't. Um, So I I, I encourage our clients to start the conversation less from what they're doing wrong or not enough of, because that's the tendency and, and rather like focus on the positives without patting yourself too much on the back and then establish these key objectives that are measurable and impactful. But having said all that, it's, it's still a, a tough question to answer, but I think the, the, the more we get to doing instead of talking, I think we're making progress.
0: Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, so let's move on to another topic here. Um, we have a few minutes. Um, I want to talk about succession planning. So we've talked about billions. We're going to talk about another binge-worthy show here, Succession. Um, so I you've love got that show. Yeah, so you've got Logan Roy, who's the CEO of, you know, one of the largest media and entertainment conglomerates. So he's the patriarch of the family. You've got his four kids, and they're all sort of vying for power, and he's considering retirement. And it's just, you know, a highly dysfunctional power struggle. (laughs) And basically every episode ends in disaster, right? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, this is fictional and kind of an extreme case, but, you know, there are many real life situations where you've got a really highly successful fund manager who's kind of looking to, um, you know, prepare and develop the next generation of talent. So um, what do you think, you know, are some of those aspects that are often overlooked when it comes to succession planning? How do you avoid this crazy situation of Logan Roy and his kids?
1: Uh, a couple things. One is I, I think uh, the assumption that one's health will be good forever and therefore you kind of lack the motivation to develop a succession plan. I mean, if I think of Logan, I believe he only addressed succession when his health was a concern. And then, of course, his then his kids jump all over that for the power and prestige? And, and I think we can agree was it ended up being a hot mess. Um, I don't know. I, I think fund managers aren't always – The best at running a business Um, so planning in terms of leadership is not on their radar in terms of of uh, what I should be thinking about for the future and why I should care about that if something happens to me I've talked to some uh, owners uh, slash portfolio managers and when they're asked the what happens if you get hit by a bus question they respond by saying you can get your money back you know, not we're in good hands and I've got a deep team. And um, so I think they need to be willing to lean more on others, um, you know, even outside of portfolio management. So whether it's their CFO, their COO, HR, or even an outside consultant, I, I think the successful managers, they do get the importance of succession. Most likely they're going to be developing talent for many years and hopefully they have a a plan for smooth transition that's already in place. And and while that leader is still active, I think any discussion on succession has to include the sharing, the expansion of equity opportunities. Mm -hmm. I think that helps with kind of the level of motivation, commitment, the stability of key leaders to, to, and I think that can be done over time. It can be done thoughtfully, strategically uh, so that, The the succession is in place and your clients and prospective clients um, appreciate that. And uh, they might even keep you or hire you because they like that continuity. Because I don't think most people like to think in terms of uh, what happens if and it's just you. Uh, They want to know that it goes beyond you. So those are some of the things that come into mind as it relates to succession.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's great. Well, we've got a few minutes left here. Um, I just want to do a few rapid-fire questions for you here. Okay. Great. Um, so, um, your title is founder and chief inspiration officer. So, um, who, from who, or what do you draw your inspiration?
1: Oh, wow. Well, um, you know, I've never really put much emphasis, first of all, on titles, but I, I do. I, I think it's important that that the industry and our clients know the person and the firm they're working with and, and the purpose of inspiring others to be their best and to, to help them see things, you know, again, as I mentioned before, that they weren't seeing themselves. And, and ultimately if not right away, feel better about who they are and what they're capable of. So that leads to my own inspiration and I, I'm going to get personal here. It comes from the, the relationship I had with my father-in-law who, who taught me the importance of integrity and family and humility, and to be a prudent investor to be a patient investor and to do things for others without expecting anything in return so i've always kind of had that mindset to to do for others and i always was impressed with the fact that he he always remained calm during difficult times in the market and and most times saw it as a buying opportunity Mm. so honestly uh I like to tell people I fell in love with him first and then his daughter a year later. <laughs> so the
0: other way around. <laughs> right. Right. That helps. That helps in marriage too. You know, like the, the, the parents-in-law
1: <laughs> 38 years later. And, and yeah, my wife's still putting up with me.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, so, um, tell me about, um, a favorite book that you've read.
1: So I always, uh, come back to this book, but I'm, I'm a a big reader and, uh, but the purpose path by Nicholas Pierce is, I think a really great book for people to, if they haven't already found their calling, uh, it, it is, it's a great book. And, uh, Nicholas Pierce is a, he's, he's spiritual, but he's also, you know, he's a, he's a professor at Northwestern. And, um, what I did with that one is I listened to it because I love this, the, the concept of the book and the message, but it was in his voice. So I actually did a, for that one, I did an audio. I ah. uh, got to hear him speak throughout. And it was, uh, you talk about inspirational. It, it it hit to the core of everything that I try to do. That's
0: great. I'm going to check that one out. I love the, the audio books. They're great for a commute.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, okay. So last one. So we've talked a lot about TV shows in this episode. So are there any that you're currently binge watching or, or interested in?
1: Well, uh, yeah, of course, we already covered billion, so that 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 was something I was hooked on, and, and all that. But um, you know, I think Ted Lasso is pretty darn awesome.
0: entertaining. Awesome
1: but the you know what's really interesting about Ted Lasso is it started out with him being this kind of goofy guy and fun loving, but with with the time, you mm-hmm. saw that he like everybody else in the world has different issues, mm-hmm. um, and and some didn't come out right away, and. So I just think addressing the real and current issues uh, on the show uh, I thought was just uh, really touching and and uh, very uh, you know you, you didn't think you're gonna uh, cry when you were first I do. Mother, you know
0: oh man such a good show I'm I'm I don't know when the next season comes out but I'm ready for it <laughs> <laughs> So well, thank you so much, um, Paul, for joining me today. Um, so I really love um, the team-based approach that that you come come out with, and and really your focus on human potential and all the intangible aspects of developing company culture. So thanks again for for joining us.
1: You bet, it's my pleasure. One thing I wanted to add is uh, um, I also I interchange coaching and mentoring and and. Uh, as I think about, you know, people who have mentored me, I, I did want to mention a, because uh, I just talked to her last week, and she got me thinking about um, how she's impacted me. And and then um, and that's uh, uh, Jackie Charnley, who I consider a mentor, a strategic partner, and a good friend. She's somebody who's consistently supported me over the years and provided great insight and encouraged me to pursue what I cared most about. She runs a really successful consulting firm. She helps Asset managers tell their story and she's just so loved and respected in our industry. So for those listening out there, um, don't hesitate to uh, work with somebody, whether you see them as a mentor or a coach, because they can make a big difference.
0: I love that. Yeah. Mentors and coaches are, are just so critical to our success professional development. So awesome. Well, thanks again, Paul. I re- really appreciate having you on.
1: You bet. Thanks, Becky. So nice yeah, to join you, you today. Thank
0: you. Um, so thanks everyone for listening today and be sure to tune in for future episodes of Weaver Beyond the Numbers. But for today, I'm your host,
1: Becky Reader, and we'll talk again soon. Bye.